Father, we are so grateful for your grace. Jesus, we're grateful for the grace you brought to us. I pray that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit now as we look into your word, that we might understand more deeply what your grace is for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're doing a sermon series here in which we're looking at the five alones of the Reformation. And I hope it's not too confusing to you. There are five of them. Um, and maybe one of the best ways to understand these five alones is to think of what they are in contrast to. Oh, we have children's church. Great. Thank you. Uh, children who are aged four to seven are welcome to go into the next room. Uh, we have Ryan and Crystal have it today. So uh, kids are always welcome to stay in here if your parents would like, but you can also send them that way. Okay, so... The Reformation, 500 years ago, there were some really important theological conversations that absolutely had to happen. Now, as I've said for each of these messages that I've given, I, just, I do want to say a note uh, that our point in doing this sermon series isn't to, to bash anybody. Rather, our point is to highlight some, some things that we all as believers really should understand about our faith. And, and there were just some conversations that happened 500 years ago that, w- that we all need to understand the important conclusions that came from them. We all need to be able to go into God's word and to say, what does faith mean? What does grace mean? And one of the most important things that happened throughout the Reformation was that people needed to see what God's word says both about our sin and about God's solution to our sin problem. And sadly, I I feel that 500 years after the Reformation, we still need to have this conversation in our culture and even in our churches. Now, eventually, I want to talk about grace. The, the, the message today is grace alone. But before we get there, we should probably talk a little bit about sin. So I want to ask two questions about sin first. So the first one is, do we have a sin problem? Now, we in here, I hope, hope we would say yes, we understand that. But think about maybe people out there, people who are, who are not going to church, people who don't go to church. Um, if you were to have an honest conversation with them, they might very readily recognize that there is sin out there in the world, that there's, there's terrorism, there's domestic assault. And by the way, uh, we've seen some terrible things coming out of Hollywood lately in regard to uh, assault. And I'd just like to say, should we be surprised by that? Hollywood taught us exactly how to sin in those ways. And if the chickens are coming home to roost, uh, is that the saying? I don't know. But uh, we should not be surprised at all. Uh, it, it should be a reminder to us, actually, that, that we should not live according to the ways simply that Hollywood thinks that we should live by, and that there are sinful things that are being embraced in our nation, and they will cause problems. Now, think, though, again, about this person we're having this conversation with. They might say, yes, I'm appalled by the sin that I see out there in other people, but if you were to ask them about their sin, they might say, I'm not sure I see a problem. You see, they might have a good job, and a good family, and they might love their family, and they might be kind. They might even be those people who texted to send $10 to flood relief down in Texas when the hurricanes came. And if you were to ask them about their sin problem, they they might say, what sin problem are you, what, what great problem is there in me that needs to be fixed? So in answer to my first question, do we have a sin problem? Unfortunately, too many people think sin isn't that bad of a deal in them. And we'll get to that in a moment. But there's another question that we should ask in regard to sin, and this one is different. This one comes from the person who recognizes that there is a sin problem, but it's an important question nonetheless. 
How is our sin problem solved? Again, some people may readily admit that they have a sin problem, but they don't know God's solution to it. And this is where Martin Luther was in the years leading up to the Reformation. Martin Luther knew for sure that he was a sinner. In fact, I've told you before that it's said that he would spend up to six hours per day in confession, just trying to look into his soul and to see what sin was there. And I think the reason that Martin Luther did that is because he was so concerned that God had rejected him, that God did not love him. And Martin Luther was told that his forgiveness, at least in part, was tied into his ability to do good work. The church of his day even told him that he could buy a piece of paper called an an indulgence and it would shave off some of his time in purgatory. They also gave him a system of works to follow. But Martin Luther knew there was something missing in that. He didn't know exactly what was missing right away, but he had unrest in his soul as he was told one way that his sin problem would be taken care of and he knew it didn't work. Eventually, Martin Luther searched scripture to find God's answer. And God's answer to our sin problem is that God has done what is necessary for our sin to be taken care of. Our ability to be saved from sin comes from God and not from us. It comes not as a result of our works, but because of what God has done for us. So that's our topic for today, grace. What I want to do with our our sermon here is I want to walk through a passage of scripture that highlights God's grace. The passage is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And I think I've said it here this way before. Uh, I kind of like this. If you're looking for the gospel in one verse, John 3, 16 is a great verse. If you're looking for the, uh, a much longer treatment of the gospel, you can look at Romans 1 through 8. In eight chapters, the Apostle Paul lays out some beautiful things about our sin problem and what God did to rescue us and what our new life looks like. But if you're looking for just kind of an in-between, kind of a bite-sized passage to explain the gospel, I like Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And if you ever are, are wondering, you know, where do, I, where do I explain the gospel? I've got this captive audience How can I explain the gospel to them? Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is a great place to go. So we're going to walk through it today, uh, kind of chunk by chunk. And I want to start by reading verses 1 through 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. So this is the answer to our question, do we have a sin problem? And Paul wastes no time in giving a resounding, absolutely, we have a terrible sin problem. In fact, our sin problem is so bad that it says there that we were dead in transgressions and sins. And by the way, I don't think that we need to really parse out the difference between transgressions and sins here. It's two words that basically mean the same thing, that we have offended God in many, many ways. And sin causes death. That was true in the Garden of Eden. That was the punishment that God sent for death. And that's the reason why our bodies die. In fact, uh, I've been thinking a lot about death lately as our family has been experiencing uh, the loss of a loved one. And just thinking how God in his wisdom was so wise to make death the penalty for sin. Otherwise, I do not think that we would take it as seriously as we should. If we didn't die, we would not take our sin problem seriously. In fact, uh, just culturally, um, 
I think our culture has a very huge problem with death. They don't know how to handle it because they have not considered God's perspective on death. Sin causes death. But it's interesting in Ephesians 2, we're not even really talking just about physical death. We're talking about a spiritual separation from God. That's the kind of death we're talking about. Because isn't isn't it interesting, after saying in verse 1 that you were dead, it says in verse 2, in which you used to live. Living in sin is living in death. One theologian I read this week said that this is like the living dead. Now, I do not like zombies or zombie movies, zombie shows. I don't watch them. I know very little, but I had to like I had to do some research on them this week for my sermon. But think about zombies as an example here. They're dead, but they walk around. And their dead lives are consumed with doing things that are just destructive. They mindlessly walk around doing things that lead to death. And that's an example for us, spiritually speaking, of what it means to be dead in sin. As it says going on in this passage, to to follow the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, which, who is that, by the way? That's Satan. So as, as Satan sees dead people walking around mindlessly in their sin, he's pleased about it. That's the path he wants us to take. And in case you think that this is just talking about other people, like about those sinners out there, it says in verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time. Talks about us following the path of the sinful nature, or the flesh would be another way to translate that, gratifying its desires, living according to its ways. See, the Bible is very clear that we all had a sin problem. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God and people who live like that are not living for God even though they might think they are they're living for self according to the ways of this world and according to the path that Satan would have them go on so please see the clear and truthful message of these three verses we all used to live like that we were dead in sin now, another way I like to think of this idea of being dead in sin is to think of the story of the prodigal son. And this one's way better than my zombie analogy. This is actually scripture. Let's talk about this one. Remember the story of the prodigal son? The, the son, the, the one of two sons, went up to his father and insulted him, basically said, Dad, I don't want to wait for you to die. Will you give me my share of the inheritance right now? And the father said, okay. And the son went off and he, he lived a wild life and eventually squandered all his money. And and I wonder, how long would he kept going in that life if he didn't run out of money? But after he ran out of money, his life sank into despair, and he thought, boy, maybe I should just go back to my father, and, and maybe he'll, if I'm lucky, he'll treat me like one of his servants. But how did the father respond? Amazing. Amazing grace that we see there is a picture of the grace of our father. He, he welcomed him back. He ran to him embraced him and welcomed him back. But what I'm curious about, uh, especially for our interest today, is what he said to his son. In Luke 15, 24, the father said to the son, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. Now, if you were to ask the son when he was out living his wild life, are you dead? He probably would have said, you know, in fact, I'm really enjoying this. And if we were to say, no, you're, you're dead because you're separated from God, he might just laugh at us. But scripture says he was dead in sin. And I think that all too many people 
live their lives that way. They're, they're living according to what will satisfy the cravings of their sinful nature. And remember, it's not just them. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time. The normal way of this world, the way we all took, was a path of death. And the result is, like it says in verse 3, that we deserve God's wrath. So how should God respond? What should the next verse in this passage say? Should it talk about how mad God was and how he was going to destroy us as evildoers? He would have been justified if he did it. But here's where we see amazing grace. Here's where we see God's solution to our sin. It's not a solution, by the way, in which God pretends that we have done nothing wrong. I think that that's what a lot of people would like to suggest as the solution to our sin problem. That can't God just see that we're weak and can't he just overlook it? No, that's not God's solution. Neither is God's solution to tell us, okay, I see that you've messed up, but just try a little bit harder and do a little bit better next time. And and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we shouldn't try harder or do better. We should, and I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. But neither of those that I've mentioned so far are God's solution to our sin problem. No, the message of grace is that God provided the solution for our sin. And that's what verses 4 and 5 talk about. Now, I love these verses. Uh, Verses 8 and 9 are probably the most famous verses in our passage today. But maybe verses 4 and and 5 should climb up the list a little bit. I I want you to see how beautiful these verses are. They say, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So they start out here by talking about God's great love and mercy for us. In fact, this passage in general, verses 4 through 10, um, mention really great ways that God acts toward us. It's love, grace, mercy, kindness, and gift. Now each of those five words, they have a meaning of their own, but I want you just to think about all five of them together. Now I'll read the list again. Love, grace, mercy, kindness, and gift. Overall, I get the impression that God loves us so much that he was pleased to give us a gift that we did not deserve. In fact, a little little piece of trivia for you here, the word grace means gift. That's not all that it means. Some of these Bible words are so rich that you need like a a book to define them. But, But one simple definition of the word grace, a biblical definition, is the word gift. So maybe that's one of your takeaways for today, is just to know that that God's grace to you is his gift to you, that he has given to you, not because you deserved it, but because he loves you. You've maybe also heard grace defined as unmerited favor. I like that one. Or the, uh, I was also going to mention the acronym that Dan mentioned earlier, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's a good one too. But any way you slice it, it is a gift that we did not deserve. All of us had sinned and shown ourselves to be rebels against God. If you want to read how bad it was, you can read Romans 5, 6 through 10. Uh, I'm not going to read through it right now, but in there it says that we were powerless and ungodly. We were sinners, and it even says there that we were enemies of God. And what did God do? He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. And that's where, getting back to our passage in verse 5 today, it says that God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. And it goes on to say that that salvation is by grace. 
So let's, let's stop there in verse 5 and consider exactly how that happened. How did God give us that gift of making us alive with Christ? Well, two weeks ago I gave a sermon on Christ alone, and we need to know that he is the only way for our salvation. It's only because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we can be saved. So let's, let's think of each of those real quickly. The life of Jesus. It's only because he lived a perfect life, unlike us, that he was able to offer himself as the perfect sacrifice for us. And then in regard to his death, he died for us. When he died on the cross, he took our sin penalty upon himself and paid it for us. But he didn't stay dead. And in regard to his resurrection, his resurrection is the proof that he has power over sin and death and the devil. And by the way, I think there are great historical reasons to believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead. I think there are even greater spiritual reasons to believe it, that Jesus lives in us who believe in him. I cannot stress how important it is that we know that our salvation, our transition from death to life does not come from what we do. It comes from what God did for us in sending his son, Jesus Christ, for us. It is a gift of grace. And because Jesus lives again, we have new lives to live in him. So, there's amazing gifts of grace as we look back at the cross, as we look at our salvation when we came to know him. But the gifts don't stop there. In verses 6 and 7, they go on. It says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. In a very real way, for those of us who know Jesus as our Savior and Lord, our lives are tied directly into his life. And I'm not sure I fully get what it means when it says here that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, but I know that there's a powerful truth in there. That, that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and we're with him in some very real and spiritual way. Those promises, those blessings, those incomparable riches are ours. And specifically those riches, it says in verse 7, it talks about in the coming ages, he's going to show us the incomparable riches of his grace. And I just want to give a personal note here. Um, Most of you, maybe every one of you knows that we lost a very close member of our family this week, Christine's sister. We watched her body deteriorate. (laughs) During her four-month battle with cancer. But at the end of her life, as she was taking her last breath, we were comforted to know that because she had faith in Jesus Christ, that God would pour incomparable riches on her. And... We've been thinking, I wonder what Rachel is doing now. I was glad to think that she's a better theologian now than I am. Uh, God is pouring out grace. He's already poured it out on us in what he did in sending Jesus. He will pour out his incomparable riches on us. He He wants to show us the depths of his grace. And perhaps God has woven death into the story of our lives to help us consider that this life is not all there is. 
Too many people live just according to the pattern of this world, according to the cravings of the flesh. May we be people who live in Christ, knowing that only in Him will our souls find true satisfaction, and He will pour out His riches of grace on us. We have a choice in that, though. Either we live in sin, or we live in Christ. And on that note, let's see what verses 8 through 9, those really famous ones, tell us about how we can know whether we're in sin or in Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Again, it is by grace. Our salvation did not come because we earned it or worked for it. If so, who would get the glory? But because our salvation comes from God as a gift, He gets the glory. And and that's the topic of next Sunday's sermon, Glory to God Alone. We are saved by God's grace as a gift from him. It goes on to say in verse 8, this is not from ourselves. It couldn't be clearer. We cannot earn our way to God. We were separated from God due to our sin. That's what we had earned, all of us. Some people, like Martin Luther earlier in his life, assumed that his way back to God would be a way of him earning his way back to God. But he learned that that did not work. It could not work. And again, don't get me wrong. Our works are important, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But we are not saved by working our way back to God. Like it says in verse 9, it's not by works so that no one can boast. We are saved because of the grace of God shown to us in Jesus Christ. Although, I also want to point out that little phrase in there in verse 8, through faith. The first message in this sermon series was faith alone. Our response must be faith. Faith means believing in God. It means trusting in Him. It means, the way, one of the ways I like to say it is we give our whole lives to God. We die to ourselves and trust that God gives us new life. And for our purposes today, we could say one of the things that we trust in, that we have faith in, is that God gives us all the grace that we need. We don't trust in our ability to live according to God's ways, assuming that we could please God enough to let us into heaven. No, God has made the way for us. Let us trust in that by grace. And that's important for us both in initially receiving Jesus and in the rest of our lives. As we initially receive Jesus, it's this recognition that we couldn't do it on our own, that we needed this gift of God, this gift of salvation that comes freely through Jesus Christ. But then how are we to continue? Again, like our benediction verses say, we receive Jesus as Lord, we are to continue to live in Him as Lord. And for our purposes today, that means that we keep trusting in the grace that God gives us. We didn't earn our salvation, and we likewise, we don't maintain our position with God by our works. We don't earn that position with God. It is God's continued grace to us. And by faith, we are to keep walking with God, trusting in the grace that he will give us. And I love where Ephesians 2 goes then. Again, verses 8 and 9 are probably the most famous ones, but we should also probably include verse 10 in it, because verse 10 tells us what the rest of our lives should look like. Having come to faith in Jesus Christ and being saved by grace, verse 10 tells us what to do, and it says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Here is where good works come into play. But again, let's make sure we have the order right. First comes God's grace. 
First comes our faith in him because we can't earn our way to him. But then for those of us who have been transformed through receiving Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, we are to honor God with a life of works. So good works, please be, please be certain that you hear me on this, good works should define us. Just because we say that we can't earn our way to God doesn't mean that we should say that we shouldn't do any works. That is not the gospel message. The message is that God saves us out of death and brings us into new life. And in that new life, as we walk it by faith, God will give us the grace we need to do good works. In fact, it says in verse 10 that we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works and that God has prepared these works in advance for us. And I love this idea that the creator of the universe has lined up good works for us to do. So think about how good God is at creating. I like to ask this question, and I'll ask you now just to think about it. What's your favorite part of creation? Maybe it's looking up at the cosmos. Maybe it's holding a new baby in your arms. Maybe it's the intricacies of the atomic level, the things going on there. Maybe it's a beautiful lake or a mountain or a forest. Think about how good God is at creating, and then recognize that he created you and gave you new birth in Jesus Christ, and has created good works for you to walk around in. And I like this idea that, that God, who knows you personally, has created personal works for you to do. Things that are yours to do, not mine. God has given me my own set of good works to do, but he's also created good works prepared in advance for you to do. And as you do those by faith, you can give God honor and glory. You were created to work. That's, that's part of our new life in Christ, is that we would worship God by working for Him. So that includes your job, but also includes all the other good things He has for you to do. The kindness that you show to your neighbors. All sorts of good works that God has prepared for you to do. By faith, let's get to doing them. I love how the Apostle Paul put it elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15.10, where he says, But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. I love the example of Paul's life, that he traveled basically as far as he could to spread the gospel message. And what did he say was the power at work in him? Was it his own desire to see things changed? No, it was God's grace that caused him to work harder. May we be people who are so transformed by the grace of God that we get to work honoring him and glorifying by doing those works that he has prepared for us to do. And I just want to say a couple of closing remarks here. Um, one thing, just to know about Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, it is a great study in contrast. In verses 1 through 2, it says that we were dead in sin and that we used to walk around in it. We were like those mindless zombies doing things that lead to death and destruction. But in verse 5, it says that we were made alive with Christ. And because we are alive in Christ, we don't have to walk in sin any longer. But according to verse 10, we can walk in the good works that God has prepared for us to do. We are either in sin or in Christ. In fact, some people have said that that's kind of the way to understand Paul's theology in his, the, the 13 letters that he wrote in the New Testament. That it's this contrast between being in sin versus being in Christ. By God's grace, we are not treated as we deserved. We were in sin, 
But God, I love, we read that in Psalm 103 today, that God does not treat us as our sins deserve. Now, don't get me wrong. There will be a time where God will, will bring final judgment and those who are not with Christ will receive judgment. But for those of us who humble ourselves before Jesus Christ, receive him by faith as a gift of God's grace, we have new lives to live and we can live in Christ. Again, grace means gift. And please know that whether we're talking about your, your salvation or whether we're talking about your ongoing walk of faith with God, it is a gift of God to give you what you need, to give you forgiveness, to give you strength, to prepare works for you to walk around in. And because we've been given this grace, we should be transformed into people who live for God, not for ourselves, not according to the pattern of this world, not according to Satan and his ways. And if you ever see anything in your life that does not line up with your new life in Christ, repent of it immediately. One of the best tips I can give you on that is ask God to show it to you right away and turn from it right away. Don't let it fester. Don't live in it. We used to live in it. Don't do that any longer. Because of God's grace, we have a new life to live and we should always be ready to repent whenever God points sin out in our new lives. By grace, God will lead you on a better path, a path of life. And if you're at all unsure whether you've ever received that gift of grace, whether you've ever received salvation through receiving Jesus Christ by faith, please know that you can do it right now to recognize him as your Savior who forgives your sins and as your Lord who is your Master, the one in control. And on that note, I'd like to go to prayer. And I, just, I did want to offer a, a prayer that if somebody would like to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord right now, you can pray with me in the first part of this prayer. And then I'm going to close by saying a prayer for all of us that we would walk in the grace that God has for us. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love with which you loved us, the grace in which you showed by sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. And God, if there's anyone in here who has not yet received Jesus as Savior and Lord, we just say a prayer right now. God, I recognize that I have sinned against you. Thank you that you do not treat me as my sins deserve. I pray to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. I pray by faith that you would forgive me through Jesus. I pray also to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord, my Master. I give my life to you, God. And God, for all of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, I pray that we would continue in grace. Would you please strengthen us and equip us with everything good for doing your will. We thank you that you have good works prepared in advance for us to walk around in. I pray that we would do those by faith and that all along the way we would recognize your grace, your love for us. Thank you, God, for the incomparable riches of your grace. Thank you for the gospel message. Thank you for your presence with us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. We pray to be filled with the Spirit. We pray that you would strengthen us to live lives that will give you honor and glory until we see you face to face. May we honor you in all that we do. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.